This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Yes, I vote because I feel like as an African-American female, like I want my voice to be heard. Um, Conservative values. So I vote very conservative. So I try to vote for candidates that have very conservative viewpoints. Oh, I don't vote anymore now. Um, Just because I don't. um. I vote because it is our right to vote, and I take it seriously. This is San Diego Decides, a podcast by Voice of San Diego. I'm Sarah Libby, and I'm here with my pal, Rai Rivard. Hey, Sarah Libby. Hey. Back at it again with the podcast. Episode five. Yeah, I hope that's correct. I can't even tell at this point. I think so. So... Earlier this week, I was in Vegas with my husband for a little vacay, Um, and now here we are about to talk about political action committees and campaign finance. It's a real jarring transition for me. Did you bring back some of Sheldon Adelson's magic and wisdom? Just tears and disdain and regret. We're going to talk about um, political action committees with Joe Girardi from iNewsSource, and then Amy Fawcett, who leads the Chamber's uh, Political Action Committee. We're going to learn some things about PACs that we didn't know, I I hope. hope. Um, But first, let's talk a little bit about District 1. And I'm not talking about the Hunger Games. I sort of wish that I was. I'm talking about the city council, where the top two candidates in the mix, who our friend Ashley McGlone wrote about this week, are Ray Ellis, a Republican, and Barbara Bree, who's a Democrat. What's their deal? They're both business people, and they want you to know it. So I am a big fan of puns and headlines. I know that's a controversial decision to take. There was a lot of options with this headline. I think it was, they mean business? No, that, that was a rejected headline. <laughs> These candidates mean business? They want you to know their business? They want you to mind their business? There were a lot of options, a lot of all good options, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, so they're both playing up their business credentials. Ray Ellis is sort of trying to distinguish himself by saying, I'm a, a bootstraps kind of guy. I've run businesses since I was a young person. Um, and taking As a, a young person, I don't know what a bootstrap is. It's just like a kicky fashion accessory is my understanding. <laughs> anyway, so right? okay. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about fashion. I guess when they say that, I'm like, I don't know what that is. I think it's like being a self-made man. And oh. so his sort of dig at Barbara Bree that Ashley pointed out was he said, you know, I'm not an investor type. So she has a, a venture capital firm that she runs with her husband that that pumps money into fledgling ventures, some successful, some not. And he's sort of saying... I'm I'm not the investor type, although, as Ashley pointed out, he literally is the investor type. He runs an investment firm, so I'm not sure how that really works. I, he's made it seem like it doesn't take up a lot of his time, but it's still a thing that exists. But he was is he making the point that he, he was using his bootstraps before he began investing? It's a lot about bootstraps, with yes. With them? Yeah, so his story, and it's, it's a pretty good business story, is that he, as a, a young teenager, I suppose, um, made a, made some money from a lawn mowing business as, as teenagers do, lemonade stands and whatnot, mm-hmm. made money from this lawn mowing business, invested that in jet skis that he rented out at a lake. He and a friend of his, I think. And so those sort of were seed money for, for future business ventures. And that's, you know, a bootstrap story if ever I heard one. I, he was wearing boots to mow lawns is what and swimming. was he swimming in them I, at the lake? I don't know. I also don't know what sort of aquatic boots <laughs> he was wearing. Um, but so then there's Barbara Bree, who is really emphasizing her connections with this group called Connect, which is an innovation lab in San Diego and, and with UC San Diego, which has a lot of innovation type programs. Um, and so she's saying, I'm going to be the high tech entrepreneur candidate. 
And they're both really emphasizing these business backgrounds. And so we're not going to give the full rundown of their individual business ventures, but it is sort of interesting and something that we're going to talk about with Amy Fawcett later about why the chamber has chosen to weigh in on behalf of Ray Ellis when they're a really business-friendly group, but they've done that in a race in which the other candidate, a Democrat, is also saying, hey, I am a business person and that's what I care about is boosting businesses in this district. And then you have a wild card. Bruce Leitner, husband of Sherry Leitner, who's, of course, president of the city council. She's president of the city council. She is a Democrat. Her husband, Bruce Leitner, is a registered Republican. Um, So that's interesting. And so far... What I, I've understood that he has had some issues with websites. That's been kind of the dominating storyline of his candidacy so far, is that he entered this race and he had a website that looked very suspiciously similar to Ray Ellis's campaign website. And of course, the Ellis team was not a big fan of that. They said he just copied all their code, switched out Ellis with Lightner, and, and that was his new website. Tony Manolatis, uh, a name around town, just sent out just a barrage of emails saying, look at Bruce Leitner's website. Look how much it looks like Ray Ellis's website. Yeah. So he's a spokesman for Ray Ellis and he, he just really seized on this. They were very upset by the website. So Bruce Leitner's remedy to this problem was to <laughs> instead copy Sherry Leitner's old website. And it's literally just Sherry crossed out, not removed, like actually crossed out um, with Bruce written in. And that has caused some glitches as well. Um, Scott Lewis was kind of hunting around. Um, They're not necessarily links that you can get to from the main site, but if you're, you know, creative enough, you can go to Bruce Leitner's website and hit backslash endorse. Um, and all these endorsements pop up, and they're a really impressive list of endorsements. And it turns out they are not for him. They are for Sherry Leitner. They are part of that old website that he copied. And so you have names like Congresswoman Lynn Shank on that list. And to my knowledge, she has not endorsed Bruce Leitner. I would be very surprised if she endorsed Bruce Leitner, a Republican, over Barbara Bree, a Democrat who is a woman. So just things like that. Um, he said that they're glitches, they're fixing them, but websites. He's not running for web designer, though. He's running for city council. Well, there you go. He's he's in the mix. And it's very strange because he's kind of a firebrand personality on behalf of his wife um, over the last few years. Um, you know, has just viciously attacked Ray Ellis over Twitter a lot. Um, those exchanges are a delight to read. Highly recommend. I've heard that he has edited her Wikipedia page on her behalf. So he does know a little bit about computers. Presumably. So it's just, you know, it's a really affluent coastal district. And the issue that seems to have risen to the top so far is vacation rentals. So that's, you know, what's happening. One Paseo and density and development and keeping things the way those residents who live near the coast like them. Those are seem to be the dominating issues so far when we're not talking about bootstraps or websites, which... Or seals. There's some seal issues there. There's some seal issues. Seals are strangely also part of the city attorney race, thanks to Brian Peace. I don't think they've really factored in, but they're just on his resume. You know, seals pop up in interesting places. Restaurants, city attorney races... And on that note, we have a couple of guests lined up uh, to talk about campaign finance, political action committees, independent expenditures, and and whether some of these uh, activities, political activities, have the seal of approval. Oh, I love what you just did there. <laughs> of candidates running for office. First, we're going to talk with Joe Urardi of iNewsource. So we're talking about PACs. I envision doing an episode about PACs, sort of a, a PACs for dummies. Political action committees, by the way. Right. We are the dummies, Sarah and Rye, just to be clear. And I sort of put it off because it would require me learning more about PACs. <laughs> and it's something learn? I've been <laughs> reluctant to do for several years as a campaign reporter. <laughs> so, you know, we just decided to go for it. And we're going to learn, I think, along with everybody and our pal, Joe. Urardi from 
iNewsource is going to help us because he, I think, is more skilled and understanding of these issues than we are. This is just a blind spot for me. I'm going to be honest with you. Free association. When I think of PACs, I think of very weird names for organizations. Freedom for America, for justice for all. American citizens who love rainbows and freedom and tacos would maybe be my pack. For good things against bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, I covered a little. I covered some political action committees before, and some IEs, also known as independent expenditures, right. which are what PACs sometimes do. So, you brought up PAC is an acronym. Brought up IEs. I think this is one of the roadblocks that keeps me and other people from really wrapping their mind around a lot of these issues is that I'm an editor and words matter to me. And a lot of these terms are really inaccessible and just keep things shrouded in mystery. So Joe, tell us, what is a super PAC? What is dark money? What is an IE? What are these words that don't really mean much on their face? (laughs) It's true. On, On their face, they don't really seem to mean very much. Um, and a lot of them are pretty new to the lexicon. They've only been around for the last uh, six years or so. And the reason is um, back in, to bring it way back to, let's say, the early, mid-1970s, there was Watergate, and everyone thinks Watergate. They think the break-in at the DNC. Nixon had to resign. It's a huge scandal. But a large part of it actually involved basically illegal campaign contributions to that Nixon was raising and his aides were raising. And uh, in response to that, Congress established the Federal Election Commission, the FEC, and all these campaign finance laws that basically restricted how much candidates could raise, from who they could raise it, and whatnot. That was pretty much the system we had for about 30 years. And in this system, you basically had two entities. You had candidate committees, which is, you know, your typical... Um, vehicle that a political candidate uses to raise money and then spend money on her or his campaigns. Pretty simple. You also had these things called PACs, political action committees, which were campaign committees that weren't tied to a specific candidate running for office. They could be appendages of organizations like chambers of commerce, for example, or they could be totally independent set up by political professionals, basically, who had a particular liberal or conservative ideology that they wanted to promote. And the way that these PACs would be run is they could give contributions to political candidates, um, and those amounts varied by year, but they were pretty restricted. Or they could run these things called independent expenditures. And independent expenditures are basically like advertising, things like that, that they couldn't discuss with the candidates. They couldn't coordinate and say, hey, we, run, we want to buy a million dollars worth of TV ads for you. What should we put in them, candidate A? They couldn't do that. They couldn't talk. They had to be independent. And that's basically how things existed for like 30, 35 years until we get to 2010. And then we had this decision called Citizens United at the Supreme Court. Citizens United and a lower court decision a couple months later basically threw out 35 years of campaign finance law. They said that, number one, uh, corporations and labor unions could directly use their treasuries to make political expenditures before that had been banned. And then a couple months later in a second court case, basically all contribution limits to these, to PACs that made independent expenditures were thrown out the window. So long as those PACs only made these independent expenditures. They've, they've, if PAC said, we won't contribute directly to a candidate's campaign, we're only going to run independent TV, radio advertising, polling, whatever, the Supreme Court, pardon me, a lower court said, okay, then you can raise unlimited sources, unlimited amounts of money from, because this isn't United, corporations, unions, basically other PACs, anything, basically. And so that's sort of where we are now in terms of having candidate control committees, uh, regular old PACs that have to make these heavily regulated contributions to candidates, and then the super PACs, which are the ones that Citizens United created, where so long as they say we're only going to run independent advertising, only going to make independent expenditures, 
we can raise unlimited money from basically any source, human, corporate, what have you. So the big lightning rod, big picture reasoning behind this is that money is speech and money toward a candidate is speech and that these groups have rights to free speech just like other Americans. And that's kind of a very polarizing idea. Is that the basic thrust? Am I am, yeah, I, am I, I doing PACs? Well, did, well, yeah. did I get it? Right. You really did. Um, you know, and, and you basically got half of the logic that the Supreme Court handed down with Citizens United. They said, look, just as you or me standing down on a corner with a candidate sign saying vote for so-and-so is an act of free speech, you can't have, you know, the cops coming in and busting that up and hauling you off to jail for doing that. Likewise, an individual who wants to take out $10 million from her or his personal bank account or the personal or the corporate bank account of a company that he or she controls and make $10 million worth of advertising buys to support that same candidate, that's the same thing. You on the corner holding that sign say vote for candidate A is the same as an extremely wealthy individual or major corporation taking $10 million and spending it on an ad blitz to support candidate A. So they said that can't be... Um, that can't be restricted. It violates the First Amendment freedom of speech. The other half of their argument was that, look, we're very aware of political corruption. That's why these campaign finance laws have been in place for decades, some dating back to the early 1900s even. But here's why this isn't going to have a corrupting influence on our politicians and elected officials, because we're still going to say you can't directly give $10 million to a candidate. Because that would be corrupt. You know, if you give $10 million to a candidate, that candidate is going to feel like she or he owes you something. But if you just go and you make these independent expenditures, you give it to some super PAC that's not communicating with the candidate, that's not coordinating these ads or whatever, then that's, you know, that's that that's not yeah, corrupting. It's just out of the goodness of your heart. Exactly. Totally separate. Exactly. It's totally separate. Makes and sense. so and yeah, yeah. right. And Absolutely. and so that's that's not gonna be a problem. And so, you know, that's a logic that swayed five out of nine Supreme Court justices. You know, I think eighty percent of Americans in recent polls said, you know, what planet are you living on? But that is the laws that we, we live on right now. So I can't if Sarah Libby goes and runs for office, I can't give her ten million dollars, but I could go out and spend $10 million saying Sarah Libby is really awesome. And if you're voting, you know, you should probably vote for somebody that's awesome. Uh, and, and that's completely different in the eyes of the Supreme Court. That is the baseline of what I would expect from you, by the way, Ray. So you mentioned um, this separation element and, you know, again, just me, the few things that I know and think of when we talk about PACs are that PACs tend to have, I think, some of the dirtiest, some of the most harsh ads. And I think a big part of the reasoning for that is that candidates have that level of separation and there's, you know, some distance they could claim like, oh, I had nothing to do with this. They just happened to savagely attack my opponent and it, it happened to benefit me. But, you know, um, I don't get any of the blowback from that, um, which is really convenient. And so when Ryan and I were talking about this, we both, um, I think different ads came to mind that happened in San Diego from the last few years. And by far the most, I'm going to say, disgusting one that I've seen over the last few years is an ad that was run by the Lincoln Club um, and their PAC activities that was run against David Alvarez. And it was just a pretty badly photoshopped. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to have a disgusting attack, at least do it in a high quality way, maybe, in which he was like grabbing a wad of cash and like flashing what was clearly meant to be a gang sign. I mean, the denials there are just pretty hilarious. I think Tom Shepard called it like dog whistle racism at the time, and they were, you know, rightly called out for this. But Again, that that was something that Kevin Faulkner was able to say, like, hey, this this didn't have anything to do with me. I didn't this wasn't my idea. I didn't give them my permission. And so it's just kind of a convenient element to this whole uh, situation that that they're allowed to sort of be the attack dogs when it comes to ads um, and the candidates get to sort of be 
relatively scot-free in that situation. The one the one I thought was pretty gross was a, a Democratic effort or a Democrat-aligned effort against Carl DeMaio back in, in 2012, where they had this uh, group called Conservatives for Gay Rights supporting Carl DeMaio for mayor 2012. And it was sort of to highlight for conservative voters that Carl DeMaio was gay and presumably to suppress conservative votes that were uncomfortable with homosexuality in, in the mayoral race. And I just thought that was gross. Yeah, it's super gross because it's under this sort of guise of like being a gay friendly group, but really just highlighting that he's gay as if that's something bad. They're, I mean, they're both gross ads and they both came from PECs. We're talking later in this episode with Amy Fawcett, who runs the Chamber of Commerce PAC. Other than the Chamber, what are some of the big major players as as far as PAC groups and, and who are they aligned with? So there's, you know, these, these PACs that kind of are always around kind of constantly are sort of these PACs that tend to be attached to an organization. So you mentioned Chamber of Commerce, of course, they have a political action committee. Um, at the same time, there's the Lincoln Club that you mentioned earlier. For folks who don't know, the Lincoln Club is a conservative, um, you know, political, I guess you call it club, like they call it, of um, basically conservative-minded uh, businesses and businessmen in San Diego County. And they have a political action committee, and that's paid for by dues to the Lincoln Club and also by, if, you know, companies or individuals want to go above and beyond that, they certainly can, can contribute money to it. There's the contractors here have an infrastructure pack that the big contracting companies put money into. The hotel industry is very powerful in town. They have a lot of money and they have a pack that hotel companies put money into. All of these packs are sort of just around constantly. They're getting money from the dues of the members of the organizations that they're attached to. And they kind of just exist constantly and they're constantly collecting money, spending money, you know, pushing issues, that sort of thing, election, election. The other PACs that you that you see are sort of these primarily focused, narrowly focused PACs that pop up from election to election to support and oppose specific candidates. And probably the biggest one at the moment is this PAC that arose to support uh, Kevin Faulkner's mayoral re-election. It's called um, Communities United for Tomorrow's Economy, which again, right, it's like, great, who's... Who doesn't want to unite with communities for tomorrow's economy? And that's the Lincoln Club and the Chambers. Right. Yeah. I personally hope that tomorrow the economy is doing great things. Yeah, and that our communities are united. Um, and, and, you that's know, good too. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's a committee. You know, it's a pack that was established basically with a lot of support from other PACs and a lot of major interests to support a particular candidate and a particular race. And obviously, you know, it's not going to be around in a year because the election will have happened in a year you know, it'll go away. But, you know, as as kind of just evidence for sort of why these PACs are so useful, why these super PACs are so useful, you know, I, I pulled the numbers and not to pick on Mayor Faulkner, but let's just point this out, his actual campaign committee that he himself controls, you know, that's a committee where you it can only take money from actual human beings. It can't take money from corporations or unions or what have you, other PACs. And they're limited to $1,100, or I believe it's $1,050 per election that one person can give. So they raised, through the end of last year, a little over a million dollars from about 2,300 separate contributions, um, which maybe not exactly separate individuals, certainly, but can kind of give you a sense, right? That's It's a fairly broad base of support, ordinary people who are contributing to this committee. This Committees United for Tomorrow's Economy raised about $610,000 from 15 contributions last year. So you're talking more than half the money raised from one-tenth one of one percent of the number of contributions. So, so really what these super PACs allow you, corporations, other PACs, in some cases very wealthy individuals to do, is really have an extremely outsized um, influence in, in political campaigns. It's just like it it all feels so hopeless and and it feels so distant from the world I exist in. I mean, I don't contribute to campaigns, obviously, because I'm a journalist, but if I wanted to, I just would have such a limited amount of resources to spend. And just the idea of pumping thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars into a race 
is just so outside the bounds of like my existence that it's hard to wrap your mind around these issues. Well, I mean, you know, it's definitely outside sort of the bounds of, you know, our existence think that we could ever kind of, you know, give that much money. But, you know, the fact is just like us and every other person who lives in this city and this state and this country, you know, these are the people who are being elected to represent us and make decisions that have huge impacts on our lives. Um, and so this stuff, you know, it's a little hard to wrap your head around, sure, but really it's, it's extremely important to how the city and this country is governed. Now we're going to go from learning about PACs to talking about someone who runs one. That's Amy Fawcett, the Chief Operating Officer of the San Diego Regional Chamber of Commerce and also the head of their Political Action Committee. So we're here with Amy Fawcett, um, who runs one PAC, multiple PACs. Please tell us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Two PACs, general purpose PACs, uh, the San Diego Regional Chamber of Commerce Political Action Committee and the Jobs Pack. Uh, we also, right now, for the 2016 election cycle, have five independent, four independent expenditure committees in support of candidates. We also have a committee established in support of Rebuild San Diego, which is the infrastructure um, ballot measure placed on the ballot by the city of San Diego. Can you tell us about the jobs pack and how that's different from the chamber pack? They're just two different. PACs um, that we had, the jobs pack was originally sponsored by the San Diego Downtown Partnership um, and we merged together. Um, and so now it's just an entity that we maintain. And most of our activity though comes out of the Chamber Political Action Committee. Let's talk about the Chamber Political Action Committee. So we dug up a column that uh, Scott wrote in 2010. You might be familiar with it, um, but in it, Carl DeMaio was talking about the Chamber and said they don't support candidates, they don't get behind initiatives, they do talk, and that's wonderful to have people talk. You can talk all you want, but if you don't act, you don't get results. And in response, um, the then CEO of the chamber, Tom Warnham. uh, He was a board chair. Okay. Yeah. So his response to that was, we don't support candidates, we do not have a PAC, we're a nonprofit organization, and it's not in our mission. So a lot's changed. Um, can you talk about how that change evolved? Was was it a response to Carl DeMaio? Were things already in the works? Or how did you guys decide to get more active? I don't think it was a response to Carl DeMaio. I think it was a response that the collective board and the executive committee of the San Diego Chamber of Commerce felt that in order for them to be heard uh, on the business policies and and have a voice with business-friendly candidates and getting them elected, it was really important to start getting involved in politics. Um, California is a really challenging place for small businesses to do to do business. Um, and in San Diego, we're trying to be the most business-friendly region in California. And with that, we need to start helping and supporting uh, with uh, campaigns, getting business-friendly candidates elected so that we have a voice. There was uh, at the chamber had a, the 145th anniversary earlier early this year, back in January. And there was this like, uh, for, for anybody who wasn't there, there was like a newscast. There was like the whole premise was a sort of like fake newscast going on. And there was this sort of fake weather report. And, and there, uh, the, the weather person was saying, you know, it's all sunny in San Diego, but uh oh, there's like clouds moving in. And some of the clouds, one of the clouds was, I think, minimum wage. And that was, I guess, kind of top of mind at the time, top issue uh, that the chamber was concerned about. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's pretty much mute. What What are some of the issues you're trying to deal with now in the, in the next cycle or the next couple of years? Uh, the next couple of years, uh, well, minimum wage is still an issue uh, for us. Um, we were going to be monitoring the impact that it does have on small businesses uh, relating to jobs. Um, you know, our position is the money has to come from somewhere and businesses need to be able to have um, the flexibility during economies, bad economies, down economies to manage their their budgets. So we're looking at that. We're going to continue to monitor those situations. And obviously we still oppose Proposition I, which is the city's minimum wage. It is 11 to 50, which you'd think is a bit mute uh, relating to the 15 dollars at the state. Uh, but locally, the actual 1150 kicks in sooner than the 15 than it does in the state initiative. Um, we're also looking at the climate action plan. Uh, infrastructure is a very big 
um, issue for us is why we're supporting Rebuild San Diego, uh, which starts with reforming the way the city prioritizes its budgeting by amending the charter to make certain amounts of revenues uh, go towards infrastructure and streets instead of just constantly going about it on a year-by-year basis. Uh, the convention center expansion is always on our mind, whether contiguous or non-contiguous. Uh, we are also really uh, getting involved uh, in looking over and reviewing and analyzing the Chargers Initiative as well as the Briggs Initiative. Um, we are also... Um, Gosh, uh, we also have a new jobs uh, strategy initiative that we're launching today, um, which is a collaboration of chambers, EDCs, and industry-specific organizations in partnership with the city of San Diego, the county, and SANDAG to do an inventory of who's doing what to create jobs and actually create measurables so that we can judge how well we're doing in San Diego. I want to go back to the minimum wage. I have a couple questions on that. We we talked about how the the local measure is sort of neutered a little bit, but you guys are still involved in opposing it. Um, Do you plan to spend money in opposition of of that measure? Um, We are... (laughs) We are still looking at what our options are relating to spending money on that. Obviously, with the $15 at the statewide, it's changed our our ways that we're thinking of of allocating uh, resources and how much, which we are still working with our coalition on. Um, We uh, believe that um, it's we still oppose uh, the minimum wage on Proposition I at the city level. Um, but at this time, we haven't yet determined how much money we're going to be spending, but we are analyzing all of our options. So one thing that the local measure includes that the state measure doesn't is paid sick days. Is mm-hmm. that an element that the chamber is specifically opposed to, or is it just the wage? Uh, no, we are opposed to the entire initiative of Proposition I, which includes the eleven the the eleven fifty at which it's phased in very quickly, um, the additional sick days, um, and as well as the uh, uh, CPI, the uh, the the automatic indexing on the wage. Um, the we we would really prefer that it be not piecemealed city by city. Uh, It puts us at an awkwardly competitive disadvantage with the other 17 cities throughout the county. For a very, well, a relatively brief period of time on just the wage part. I I would agree with you on that. I don't think the businesses that have to absorb that cost are comfortable with being able to do it on a brief time frame. Is anybody saying uh, the time period is brief but long enough that we're going to move to Fresno? Uh, out of San Diego to Fresno or some business in Fresno that would, you know, get the minimum wage hiked later would not come to San Diego because of the minimum wage? I mean, is there, are there people saying that this is a real game changer for a year or two or whatever? I think it makes things extremely complicated for San Diego's county economy. I don't think that anyone's saying I'm going to, well, they could be, I've not heard that, but I do think the talk is, well, if you are uh, on one side of El Cajon Boulevard, you're the city of San Diego, and on the other side of El Cajon Boulevard, you're the city of La Mesa, and you have more sick days on this side of the boulevard versus that side of the boulevard, well, yeah, you you would consider, why not? Just move across the street. Um, you also have issues of, well, if you're a business in the city of La Mesa, but you dispatch to the city of San Diego, who's monitoring and who's keeping track of that? And it's it's extremely complicated when, when you're that one city within a county of other cities to to um, put as a competitive disadvantage. So you mentioned some of the the issues that you guys are monitoring right now and want to prioritize. Um, and you also said that you have a few independent expenditure mm-hmm. um, groups going for specific candidates. Can you talk about the the candidates that you're focused on and what the decision making was that went into that? Absolutely. Um, our first uh, priority uh, is Mayor Kevin Faulkner's reelection. Um, we came out, we uh, were the first business organization to endorse him. Um, we endorsed him when he ran, uh, when there was a, a vacancy by the previous mayor. Um, and he's been very good to us uh, relating to listening to our, our issues and supporting our uh, business-friendly policies. Um, that's one of them. Uh, uh, Ray Ellis for San Diego City Council District 1 is also a priority. Uh, we are also supporting um, uh, Mayor Gaspar for County Supervisor. Uh, we think that she, as a small business owner herself, is going to provide um, that um, necessary um, openness and understanding of how the economy and businesses operate in San Diego. Uh, we are also supporting uh, Rebuild 
And um, uh, we are also uh, have an expenditure out in support of Ricardo Flores for city council as well. And you, you have uh, failed to know maybe in the introduction, you have long relationship with uh, Jerry Sanders. Kevin Faulkner used to be on both their staffs when Sanders was mayor and Faulkner was on the city council. So you Known, yes. known him a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, I've known him. I've been in San Diego politics for almost 20 years. So you mentioned the D1 race. You guys have gone all in for Ray Ellis. Um, this is one I'm really interested in because we had a story earlier this week sort of detailing the fact that the two major candidates in the race, Ray Ellis and Barbara Bree, who's a Democrat, are both making their business experience sort of the centerpiece of their campaigns and saying their efforts to boost tech companies and innovation and businesses within that district are really their main priorities. So, you know, I think the chamber talks occasionally about being a really bipartisan group. Can you talk about the decision-making that went into why Ellis over Bree or why weigh in at all when they're both um, really just taking business very seriously and boosting their business sort of bona fides? Well, I think that we we consider that Ray Ellis is more business friendly relating to the policies of which um, from the very beginning, um, from the pension reform issue, um, he would have supported it prior to uh, the Citizens Initiative passing. Um, he has a collaborative approach in dealing with um, development, uh, the One Paseo project to ensure that, you know, that business is heard, but also the community is heard. Uh, so we felt that uh, Ray was going to be um, more open and better at solving problems for us relating to some of our business issues. We did endorse um, uh, Congressman Scott Peters uh, for re-election. Um, he's been, um, to find a way to be able to balance the two sides, he's done a phenomenal job, in our opinion, uh, doing that. So let's talk about that. So the San Diego Regional Chamber did not weigh in on the Scott Peters race when he was facing Carl DeMaio, even though the National Chamber did. Um, why the decision to weigh in now um, and to sit out last time around? Uh, the last time around, uh, it, it depends on how many elections we're actually looking at from a, from a uh, political standpoint. We, can, we only have so much bandwidth to get into so many races. Uh, Scott was new, um, and we hadn't had too much of an opportunity to um, work with him on specific issues relating. Uh, so we just didn't have that um, uh, track record with him as of yet. And after him being in, we were able to um, work with him some more and, and get there. But it's also based on our bandwidth. But what do you mean by new? He was on the city council. He was on the port. So he, it seems like he had as much experience as Carl DeMaio. Uh, but not not from a congressional standpoint. So city council is nonpartisan. Congress is partisan. Politics and the game of politics changes um, between the partisan and nonpartisan. Has the chamber ever backed a Democrat in a race in which there was also a Republican? I know I've gotten into this with a couple groups that sort of object to being labeled conservative or Republican um, because they say, well, we've endorsed Democratic candidates before. But if you go back there almost exclusively in races in which there were no Republicans running. Um, so is this um, endorsement of Scott Peters in his current race the first time the chamber has done that? Uh, yes. Uh, the chamber has historically has not gotten involved in endorsing candidates prior to Jerry Sanders becoming the CEO and president. And that was a strategic decision made by the board to do that. Um, prior to that, they did endorse Jerry Sanders for mayor against Donna, uh, Donna Fry and, and Jan Goldsmith against Mike Aguirre. Um, so going forward, we are always looking at it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican, a Democrat or a declined to state. We judge it based on the policies that you support. Um, there isn't a lot when it comes to um, business candidates. There's a there's a divide of business and labor candidates, and it's it's challenging to walk that line and find some, find a candidate that's going to be open to both. But we are always out on the lookout for any any candidate that's going to be willing to give us the time um, and that we feel comfortable that not only will they support our initiatives, but if they can't support our initiatives, that they're going to work with us to ensure that the mitigation on the economy and jobs are taken into account. So what was it over the last couple of years that sold you on Scott Peters? 
uh, the trade promotion agreement. Um, he also worked very well with us in trying to ensure the medical device tax, uh, solving that issue uh, with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, he was very open and came to ask us to organize businesses so that he can come and talk to people about them, about the impacts of the Affordable Care Act, and was very open to fix-it legislation. Um, he's also been very direct on where he can help us and where he can't. Um, and he was also very helpful and instrumental in getting us um, meetings that were necessary in our D.C. delegation trip so that, that we can be heard on our issues. One of the uh, things I like to look at is the, the names of independent expenditures. I find them fascinating and, and of political action. Can and just, long. They are very <laughs> long. And so I love the the, the Ray Ellis one that, that the chamber and, and I think the Lincoln Club's involved in is Coastal Communities for a Fair Economy. The one for Kevin Faulkner is Communities United for Tomorrow's Economy. The one for Ricardo Flores there in the city council race is Urban Neighborhoods united supporting Ricardo Flores. And I'm wondering, is there something in these names, like it's coastal communities for a fair economy? Do they, do they not want tomorrow's economy, like the communities united behind the mayor? Or do the urban neighborhoods not want a fair economy? Like, how do you pick these things? Um, actually, not that much thought goes into it, um, to be <laughs> honest with you. Um, I think we worry more about, uh, well, first of all, we always want to make sure our economy and the jobs are in the names. I mean, I think that's more transparent on where it's coming from. But keep in mind that there are regulations by the FPPC and the Ethics Commission of what you need to put in your disclosure. So you do have citizens, urban, coastal. So we're just trying to differentiate the area. So District 1 is coastal. The mayor is citizens. Uh, Ricardo is urban. So that plus economy. So that's what we take into account. But we do get really wrapped up in, you have to then say, in support of the candidate's name, the election cycle, sponsored by, with major funding provided by. All that needs to be, I mean, it's about a paragraph for a disclosure. So you mentioned a, a little bit back that you guys are still weighing whether to weigh in or how to weigh in on a stadium. Can you talk about where you are in that process? Absolutely. So the chamber's original position was uh, to support contiguous um, convention center expansion with the financing plan that was no longer viable. And you were part of the group that that came up with that plan? Were you on the stadium I, committee? No, um, I was um, Mayor Sanders, right. uh, deputy chief of okay. staff that was uh, part of the, the financing plan. Um, so when the chamber, when all the lawsuits started taking place like, for environmental and the financing on contiguous and the issue of the stadium of being downtown that the chargers have chosen to pursue, we thought we needed to broaden our our way of approaching it. So not only do we still maintain that we need to have a contiguous expansion of the convention center, we also believe that we need to um, explore the alternative of non-contiguous and really take a look at the stadium proposal for the Chargers going downtown. Uh, we have in the first part of May, we'll be bringing uh, Fred Mass. Uh, as well as Jeannie Bonk, the CFO of the Chargers, and Goldman and Sachs to begin having a dialogue relating to questions answered on the financing plan and the initiative. Um, the Chargers have been a very good uh, community uh, member of this community, and I think that a lot of people still want them to stay. Uh, so we feel that as the Chamber of Commerce, it's our job to really take a look at a, uh, this issue very closely and take our time um, in analyzing it and support whatever we can moving forward for a solution. So you've backed off the idea that it has to be contiguous, perhaps, and are open to the Chargers plan and the Citizens plan, or, or are you focusing more on the Chargers plan? Uh, currently, we're focusing more on the Chargers plan. The other Citizens plan, uh, we have grave concerns about a lot of litigation um, has come out, litigation uh, attorneys' opinions have come out, and it has some issues around it. Uh, but this is, the Chargers plan also has issues around it as well that we plan on diving into. Did the you, you talked about the the Chargers have had a good and, and long relationship with the city? I got here like a year ago, and my my memory obviously then is short. And it's just been a just they just don't seem like they have a good relationship in recent times. Do how do you who's who've been around a really long time measure the past year, which seems really tortured, versus before that? Uh, well. I'll I'll just say I was on the mayor's citizens advisory group for the stadium that during that 
period of time. Um, I think prior to that, um, the Chargers had wanted to stay in San Diego. I think that the dynamics of the business of the NFL and moving stadiums around and moving teams around uh, was was really um, emotionally charged and and a lot complex compared to what we probably knew um, on this on the surface area. Um, I think that the Chargers have always wanted to stay in San Diego. I think it was unfortunate over the last year what took place relating to the stadium discussions. Um, we hope now that uh, the Chargers understand that um, we are happy that they want to stay and we want to do what we can to really dive into the initiative and hopefully come out in support of them. Um, but also they, I think they do understand that they need, they have a lot of repairs to do with the community um, that it, that needs to be done. And I don't think that they, I think that they realize that and they're going to do what they can to do that going forward. Does Dean Spano say like, man, we got really, we got really swept up in that. Thanks. Sorry about all that. Um, I don't have direct <laughs> conversations with him, so I don't know, but I, I can only see, comment on what I've seen, uh, their behavior and what I've seen in the media, that they are really trying to turn the tide um, by showing that they want to be here in San Diego. Is there anything else that you want to add or talk um, about? Yeah, I'll just add, um, you know, that the over the last several years, the different business uh, political action committees from uh, that I'll call our partners, uh, the Lincoln Club, the Building Industry Association, AGC, restaurants, realtors, um, lodging industry that, you know, we've come together and to collaborate uh, to make sure that we get business friendly candidates elected. And, and that's not necessarily meaning that they have to be with us 100% of the time. But what it does mean is that you are with us as much as you can be. And when you can't be, you're going to do your best to make sure that the businesses are heard and that any type of modifications to any policies that can be made that can help the economy and help businesses are taken into account. Cool. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for it's having great me. to have you. Thanks. Okay. So we've learned some of the basics about PACs and about campaign finance. Um, and so I expertly pulled a couple of crazy ballot measures that deal with campaign finance. Did you see Brittany when you were in Vegas? I'm trying to tie this whole thing together. I did not. So it was my husband's birthday, and I felt like, you know, it would have been a perfect birthday gift for me. It was not. Okay. We, like, ate and drank. That was it. Okay. Let's talk about packs and rules for them that people are trying to implement. There are a couple measures on the table that are still gathering signatures that would deal with campaign finance. One would be a constitutional amendment to the state constitution that would impose a 1,000% sales tax on all political advertising that happens within the state. And by their definition, that includes all media spending by all political parties, PACs, or candidates, and it would require proceeds of the tax to be used for public education. So that's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. The sort of official language that that is a signal to voters from the secretary of state's office says it would cause an unknown increase in state revenue so it would raise money naturally oh, nice. a thousand percent increase it's pretty it's a good. lot but that's only assuming that the measure is allowed to go into effect um after any potential court challenges and i assume there would be many limiting free speech and whatnot right so there's another measure on the table that I have not brought up until now because it's been in the news already a little bit, um, and it's actually from a local. I believe the person who's proposing this is from Rancho Bernardo, but it's worth mentioning since we're talking about this stuff. It's sort of um, referred to as the NASCAR measure, um, and this is the one that would require lawmakers to literally wear the names of their donors on their person at all times, their top 10 donors, um, anytime they're talking about state issues, they would have to wear pins or buttons. They kind of look like bumper stickers and mock-ups and the mock-ups are disturbing, <laughs> let me tell you. Um, so this person, before he wrote this measure to circulate for signatures, he staged this like event at the state capitol in which he had mock-ups um, that were full cardboard cutouts of all the different state legislators wearing these stickers all over their their clothes. But what was so kind of frightening about it was that it was clearly just a 
template body. There was like a woman body and a man body. So you have like Lorena Gonzalez cardboard cutout next to Tony Atkins cardboard cutout next to Shirley Weber cardboard cutout. And they all have literally the exact same body with just the head is different and all their various donors. So, you know, we talked about bootstraps earlier, bootstraps, you got buttons with weird donor names on them. We're just like politicians have some weird fashion things to abide by. Let's talk about our favorite things that happened this week. I'll go first. Okay. My favorite thing is sort of in two parts. Um, It was a profile that BuzzFeed ran this week of an author named Angela Flournoy, who is wonderful. Um, I recently read her novel, The Turner House. Fantastic book. Maybe my favorite book to come out in the last year. Um, And she's a USC alum, so I'm a big fan of that. The other thing that I really loved about this profile was that it shouted out this group that I'm a part of called Post Bougie. Started out as a blog um, about sort of race and politics and pop all mashed together. And it's just become sort of a bigger community for for writers who write about those issues. I used to have a blog about hip hop and politics. That's how I sort of got rolled in there. So it gives a shout out to Post Bougie, of which Angela Flournoy is a part Um, And some of its members talks about what an amazing author she is. The profile itself is really well written, just good all around. We'll link to it in our podcast post. You should check it out. Awesome. I will. My favorite thing is David Axelrod, former political advisor to, no, my favorite thing isn't David Axelrod himself, but his podcast. Is it his mustache? You know, it's gone. He shaved it for charity. Oh, is it back? I think We're going to have to check on the status I th- I of think, this mustache. I think it's gone now. Really important. I think he shaved it for charity. But he has a podcast. It's called The Axe Files. And, of course uh, it is. I think that's a pun probably really, on Axe Files. Really disappointed if it had a different name. David versus, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Good yeah, okay, okay, you're right. Keep anyway, going. Uh, so I, was dri- I went out to the East Coast to visit some folks, my folks, and I was driving for a really long time. So I listened to this podcast about an hour uh, piece per episode, and they were just really good. Um, it's, you know, it's not terribly partisan. Sometimes he has the greatest hits of the Obama administration staff on. Um, but, you know, he had Mitt Romney on, um, and he had a really wonderful interview with, uh, Ron Fournier, who's a, a longtime, uh, correspondent who covered the Clintons in Arkansas and then, and then the White House in Washington talking about his son with autism. And then David Axelrod's uh, daughter also, uh, had, had some, uh, a disability and they, they talked about it. It was very, very emotional and, and very wonderful, um, to uh, really people have thought a lot about politics, um, talking uh, about politics and, and about family and life and their hearts, and it was wonderful. That sounds great. Is David Axelrod still working for Uber, or am I getting him mixed up with another Obama I, official? I think that's David Plouffe. Oh, Davids! Yes. You guys can't see it, but I'm shaking my fist at the number of Davids. So. And David Plouffe was on David Axelrod's show. Well, there you go. Yeah. It wasn't that wrong to be confused. No. Axe Files... I like it. All right. Well, that's our show. Check out Axe Files. Check out Angela Flournoy. And think about PAX and all of the vast money that they have. And see you next time.